And welcome to New Life Sunday service. Welcome, New Life. Uh, New Life is a community that exists for the glory of God and the gospel of grace. You'll find that on our website. You'll find that on our social media. You'll find that every single service here uh, with us. And it's in Jesus that we live and move and have our being, the only hope that we have in life and in death. My name is Young, lead pastor here at New Life. Uh, we are really, really missing you guys. We're really missing um, having people here in the service. We're missing uh, just being able to see your faces. I'm really missing you guys. Um, I think Praise Team has been mentioning each week as well, um, if you are lying in bed, you know, sleepiness still in your eyes, please do arise from that place. Uh, I myself find that throughout the week that my life has become quite sedentary and I'm just kind of sitting and uh, finding uh, new sores on my body because I'm not moving enough. Uh, my wife is constantly encouraging me to go on walks with her and to see some sunlight. I think that's really beneficial for all of us. So I do encourage you, New Life, uh, to get up and to make sure that you are awake. And then later on in the day as well, see some sun, not for recreation, but for exercise, uh, obviously, right? If you're new to New Life, welcome to the live stream. Uh, we would love to connect with you, so please do stick around, fill out the newcomer's form, which will be available to you uh, later on in the service via the QR code. Uh, so do stick around for that. Now, normally, uh, when we are in service, we have a time of fellowship, uh, but as we've been doing throughout our lockdown time, um, we've been sharing in the YouTube live chat. So uh, let's do that again today for our fellowship time. Um, this week, let's cast our eyes forward. Um, it might feel a long way away now, but what are you most looking forward to doing when you can see your friends again? What are you most looking forward to doing with your friends when you can see them again? Um, so go ahead and share that in the live chat. I'll give you a few moments for that. Yeah, I'm really afraid that uh, after all of this time apart from one another, uh, we're going to struggle when we meet face to face again. I, I found that after the first lockdown uh, down in Melbourne, that I really struggled to make conversation again uh, with people face to face. That was very, very awkward. Um, if you've ever seen babies that kind of grow up just around tablets or, or devices, and then they find like a book and they try to swipe, 
you know, because they don't know anything else. I'm a little bit worried that we'll be like that. Um, I got to watch some sports last night, and it was really, uh, it felt like another world, just because they had some live crowds there, and everyone's like cheering and jeering and all that kind of stuff. And I'm looking forward to when eventually we can have live sporting events again, and we can all, you know, maybe get out together and cheer and just be amongst each other. Um, I really miss those times when we can actually be together. We're going to go into a time of scripture reading, so I'll pass it over to uh, Jennifer, who will be taking us through our scripture reading this morning. Thank you very much, Jennifer, for the reading of the Word of God this morning. Uh, the past few weeks now, we've looked at how Jesus intercedes on our behalf eternally. Uh, we saw also how we're made in the image of God. I believe Paul talked about that a little bit earlier uh, during the worship. And these past messages are all available on the YouTube channel that you're watching online from right now. Uh, it might be really helpful um, during these times when I make mention of these things, to listen as one part of a group of messages. Um, I find that the Bible constantly builds upon itself and so it's really useful um, when we refer back to past teachings and you'll find that scripture interprets scripture. So that, that's very helpful for you as well. Now as we're made in the image of God and as we're conformed to the image of Christ, this places a demand for a response from us. And this is what we'll look at through today's passage in Mark. But why don't I pray for us first before we break open the word of God today. A 
Father, we come to you and we want to humble our hearts before you. We really want to place ourselves before you, before your mercy and ask that you be with us, God. We hear your invitation through your son, Jesus, the gentle, lowly, humble, and heart one. And we ask, Lord, that you would help us to move our own hearts, that indeed you would take the hardness of our hearts and that you would give us new hearts of flesh that will be moved by you, by the love that you have for us, God. We don't want to do anything out of rote discipline, out of um, just expectation, out of social or cultural norms, but we want to do things out of love for you. So we ask, Lord, that you would help our hearts to go to you in love. Would you woo our hearts this morning once again? Turn our gaze upon you and help us, Lord, to seek you through the preaching of your word this morning, God. Help us to hear from you. Help us to be changed by your word. May we seek you in all that we do this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as we saw how Jesus intercedes on our behalf from the throne room of heaven two weeks ago, in today's passage, we see how Jesus intercedes here on earth. So he speaks, he acts, and these things demand a response. Now two types of responses are recorded in our passage today, which you'll see on screen there. Uh, First one is from verses six to seven, but some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does he speak like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And the second one comes at right at the end of our passage in verse 12. Immediately, he got up, took the mat, and went out in front of everyone. As a result, they were all astounded and gave glory to God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. These are the two responses that we see in our passage this morning. And as we look at what happens with Jesus and the people here, I'd like for you to consider what is your response to Jesus this morning as well. So at this time, Jesus was at a home in Capernaum, and when word got out, everyone came to look and to listen to what he had to say. If you read through the first couple of chapters of Mark, it's fascinating. You know, you can see how he, he's over in Capernaum and he is performing miracles and people are coming and listening. They want to know what's going on. Someone with uh, demon possession gets healed. You know, someone with leprosy gets healed. And they go out and tell everyone about what Jesus has done. And it results in Jesus not even being able to enter town openly anymore. He begins getting mobbed by curious people. Here in our passage, he's surrounded by so many people that there's no room left in the home, not even in the doorway. There's so many people packed into this one place. I can't even imagine it right now because of social distancing and not being able to see anyone, but there's so many people there, no one can go. Today, however, We know that Jesus is no longer localized to a home somewhere in Israel, that there's plenty of room in the throne room for us to bring all of our loved ones to him. Jesus is seated at the right hand 
of God the Father, ruling his kingdom and interceding for us on our behalf. Now we as those that bear the image of God, those who are being conformed to the image of Christ, can we see now the response that we also ought to have? If we view Jesus interceding eternally on our behalf, can we see as his image bearers what our response ought to be as well? As the image of Christ, we're called to be the ones who intercede on behalf of those around us. When everyone else would lose hope, when all others would give up on that one person, on that group of people, on whatever it is, we continue to pray fervently. We continue to bring our people before God. As God's creation, when we intercede by talking with God in prayer, we can recognize his will and his prerogative in his answers to those prayers. And we can be astounded and we can glorify him, whatever the answer might be. When we pray to him and we recognize who God is and who we are, as a consequence, then we can be astounded and glorify him no matter what answer comes back to our prayers. Last week, we ended off our sermon time with the statement that the most loving thing that we can do for ourselves is to know God. How much more then is it imperative that we look upon our fellow human beings, those around us who bear the image of our great God and love them in this way as well. Jesus tells us that the whole of the law is summed up in loving God and loving our neighbor as ourselves. So then, we must love those around us by first of all, presenting them to God. Nothing else that we do compares. Now let me say here that it's important to balance this statement We must act in love as well, of course. It says in James, if a brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace, stay warm and be well fed, but you don't give them what the body needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith, if it does not have works, is dead by itself. True faith has outward fruit as well. And quite often, we lean a little bit too heavily one way or the other. We can be really good at talking about issues, having nice positive thoughts towards them, thinking about change without ever actually doing anything. We don't wanna sacrifice, we don't wanna give out of our own pocket. And so we just think and talk about issues. But just like this, we can also be really good at giving generously, working to help others, without actually addressing their forgiveness before God, without ever so much as praying for them. I've taken part in evangelistic efforts in my life where I spend a lot of time with people that I like, meet them in their own places of comfort, listen to them, watch them do things that I think are probably not that helpful for them, not that helpful for my own faith. And in the end, I've left without them hearing about the God that I love. 
Sometimes we even end up partaking in the things we who are believers know is wrong, all in the name of reaching out to them. And it makes us wonder, who is actually evangelizing who here? Now, I don't say any of this to guilt you or to tell you, see, this is how you demand a response from your friends. But let's take a real objective look at what we participate in. What is it that we do in the way of evangelism? What powerful, reasonable argument are we going to give that will make people say, hey, you know what, you're right. I'm going to change every motivation and love of my heart completely reorient my life around this Jesus that you keep talking about. What are we going to do to convince people? In reality, if you really consider the words that come out of our mouths, what we do seems quite ridiculous. It's a stumbling block to some and pure foolishness to others. Yet it's by the power of the Holy Spirit at work in people's hearts that the dead receive life. None of this made sense to me before I believed. But because the Lord himself saw fit to change my heart, suddenly everything clicked into place. And I suspect it's the same for you who are believers as well. And I suspect it will be the same for your friends, your loved ones. When we pray, when we bring our own stuff to God, and when we bring our loved ones before God, we're acknowledging what we find in the creation account of Genesis that we looked at last week, that we are created beings, and he is creator. God is able, and we acknowledge that he has made us in his image. He's given us status as his children through the scandalous grace the exchange of his son for us. And as children to a loving father, we can bring everything to him. In prayer, we demonstrate that we know our place in the family and consequently, we know God's place as well. And we know that the most loving thing that we can do for others is to commit to pray on their behalf. It sounds so simple and yet so hard to partake in. Here's what this commitment to prayer, what faith in Jesus looks like in this passage. So look with me at verses three to five. They came to him bringing a paralytic carried by four of them. Since they were not able to bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And after digging through it, they lowered the mat on which the paralytic was lying. Seeing their faith, Jesus told the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Four friends bring another friend, a paralyzed man to see Jesus. By now, they've heard Jesus is able to heal. And they know this guy's not getting any better. He's paralyzed. They know that the only hope for their friend is if they bring him to Jesus. There are three obstacles that they face along the way. Number one, the crowd that surrounds Jesus, leaving no room to get to him. So, number two, the roof that blocks them from him. 
And then number three, their own doubts as well. But look at the audacity of their faith when it comes to these obstacles. Their plan to get around the crowd involves climbing up the roof of this home, carrying a paralyzed man. Like, can you even imagine carrying a paralyzed man and doing this? For them to get through the roof. See, I've always pictured this scene in a certain way. I've always pictured it as like the roof is a bit of hay or something. You know, like that old fable about the three little pigs. You know what I'm talking about? So I imagine it to be really easy to get through the roof. Like, you know, you just blow on it and then like the wolf did it, right? So you should be able to. But most houses in ancient Israel were single-story buildings with flat roofs and the roof was accessible by an outside staircase And then the roof was sometimes used for working, was sometimes used for sleeping. So you can imagine it's not flimsy. Otherwise, people would just drop through, right? It was not something that you can just easily move aside to gain access to. So wooden beams, branches, all sorts of stuff would be thatched together, would be daubed and, and put together with mud. So to read that they removed the roof It isn't some quiet, easy operation, but some real deconstruction work. Like you can see this by how Mark, our gospel writer, describes what they do as digging through the roof above Jesus. It's a disruptive, a loud act. But perhaps the biggest obstacle of all that we face along with these friends is our own doubt. Like, wait a minute, are we really doing this? Like, our friend's paralyzed, but I don't know about this. What if the reports that we heard about Jesus were embellished a little bit? It feels pretty difficult, and it feels a little bit dangerous as well to carry our paralyzed friend onto the roof of this house and then to lower him in. What are we lowering him in on? Is this a good idea? How are we even going to explain the property damage that we do to this person's house? And then perhaps the biggest question of all, what if Jesus says no after all this? But their faith, their commitment to what they're doing is instructive to us today. Their desperate desire to get their friend to the one person who could help him is more important to them than either the awkwardness of the confrontation with the owner of the house or the possibility of rejection from Jesus. Now, quite often in the modern day, we have so many concerns when it comes to faith. We think about how we're going to be perceived. We think about what our loved ones will think of us. We think about our worry that God might not answer the way that we want And we even have concerns about our precious time and the other activities that we partake in that will be moved aside when we pray. Whatever it is, these things become more important to us and we prioritize them over getting our loved ones to the one who can help. Let me voice out those questions that we so often ask when it comes to evangelism or prayer, 
And maybe you can help me to formulate an answer for yourself as well. So what if we do share with someone? What if we do bring our special someone to God in prayer and they refuse our invitation to know Jesus? What if God says no? What are your answers to these questions? I'll take you back to my high school days, unfortunately my puberty days, when I moved from America to Australia in year nine. If you can remember back to year nine, you know what a troubling time it is for a young man. Um, fear of rejection meant that after moving to a new school here in Sydney, I dreaded the introduction time of getting to know people. You know, like, how do you approach a group of people, a crowd of people that are seemingly all friends with each other? What do you, what do you even say? Can I be your friend? <laughs> Class times are a little bit better since we can all just focus on the lesson. But lunchtime is terrifying. It was terrifying for me. And so at this time, out of fear of rejection, this is what I did. I sat behind a building on the cold ground by myself, ate by myself out of sight of everyone for a number of weeks because I was afraid. My identity, my sense of self, my ego were so fragile that I couldn't handle the possibility of rejection. Even if the way that I avoided rejection resulted in the consequences of rejection. Like, does this make sense? Is our faith so fragile that we can't bear to hear from God? Do we dread our Father's reply? But having faith in God means trusting in Him to not only do what needs to be done, but to go one step further, to do better, to go against our own plans, our own requests, our own time frames, because He knows better. He is Creator. We are created. His ways are higher than ours, His thoughts higher than ours. In fact, his ways are so much higher that it's hard for us to even fit what we're reading in this passage, in verses 1 to 12, within the paradigm of our theology. If you read this from front to back, does this make sense when it comes to the theology that we hold? First of all, the healing takes center stage most of the time. A lot of the time when we read this passage, this is all we think about. We think about the healing of the paralyzed man. It's amazing to witness. But the bigger thing is the forgiveness of sins which challenges the theology of the scribes that are named in this passage. They ask this question, who can forgive sins? And the question that the scribes ask is ironically a very good one. What does forgiveness of sins result in? And how is it greater than the healing of paralysis? Now, to a physical audience, to people that could be skeptical, 
about what they've heard so far as they stand, arms folded, watching to see what Jesus is all about. It's much easier for Jesus to say, your sins are forgiven, rather than get up, take your mat and walk to a paralyzed man. One is provable immediately. One is not. One can be said and can only be believed to have happened, the forgiveness of sins. None of the people in that audience are going to be looking into this man's soul, looking at God and saying, oh yeah, his sins are forgiven. Jesus did it. But the other has to be proven with hard evidence. Here is this paralyzed man that's known to everyone. Can he walk? Now, I've been to a few strange pseudo-Christian conferences in my time that were purported to be all about supernatural healing, that were, you know, whatever judgment that you might have about these things. And often, though, when there was a time for a prayer for healing, it seemed as though there was a focus on things that weren't immediately verifiable. Healing of things that you can't see. Whereas those things that are immediately verifiable, the man in the wheelchair, the man who's been paralyzed, they don't get prayed for for some reason. And I think that's very telling. But Jesus makes, frankly, a very crazy statement that opens them up to ridicule and shame if it doesn't happen. I suspect this is why these things don't happen in these other places now in the modern day. And so it's a harder thing for Jesus to say. But by proving the harder thing, the easier thing can be proven as well. To show visible, verifiable proof of his authority to heal this paralyzed man points also to his authority to forgive sins as well. He is the Son of God. Who has authority to do these things but God himself? Now there's clearly more that Jesus is doing when it comes to all of the other moving parts of this passage. So although the friends come in with this paralyzed man seeking for him to be healed, they get to witness the forgiveness of sins as well. The healing of paralysis itself falls under the category of Jesus' authority to do such a thing. And so his divinity, his claim to do what only God can do are on display for everyone to see. And as though to amplify the force of what's taking place, Jesus then perceives in his spirit that the scribes are criticizing him despite the fact that they're not saying anything out loud. We have the benefit of reading it on the page in front of us, but Jesus perceives in his spirit. Some of us might have the very same challenges to our faith that the scribes display here about the identity of this Jesus, about who God is to you. If that's the case, I invite you to pray about those things, to ask God about who he is. But others of us who might have been in the faith for a little bit longer might feel challenged by another question. Did the paralytic have faith or not? 
because we read here that his sins are forgiven, that his paralysis is healed. Did he have faith or not? The answer is we don't know because that's not the focal point of this passage. What we do know is that the faith of the paralytic's friends is pointed out in verse five. Read with me here. Seeing their faith, Jesus told the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Seeing their faith, the paralytic himself remains still, completely inactive in what's happening until he's healed and then he gets up, takes his mat and walks out in front of everyone. We don't read so much as a word in this passage from this paralyzed man. He doesn't say anything. Instead, what we see on display is the faith of his friends. It's their faith and their actions that Jesus sees and he responds to. Faith is apparently exercised on behalf of another. I don't know how you feel about that. I mean, you're not in the room for me to gauge a reaction. Everyone seems just normal. <sighs> I don't know how you feel about faith being exercised on behalf of another. It, it feels paradigm breaking for me. But isn't this the type of faith that is the very basis for our own Christian faith? Think about this. We're all about the gospel of grace here at New Life. We talk about this every week, don't we? That means we don't talk about our own works because they were and still remain insufficient when it comes to saving us. It was purely the work of Jesus Christ that forgave our sins, that made a way for us, that the Father now sees when he looks upon our form. Rather than seeing the image that we marred by our own sin, he sees the image of Christ upon us this same image that we're continually growing in. It's a scandalous exchange at the cross as our sin is taken and put upon Jesus and his righteousness is put upon us as a new garment, like new flesh covering us from head to toe. And it's not as though we were seeking it out either. Even if we were, it was out of our own selfishness, out of the total depravity of our hearts, nothing in us cries out to God on its own. But it's the faith of God himself given as a gift to us that changes us. It's his faith that moves us. What do we do to deserve it? What were our actions? We were as still as the paralytic, but our greatest friend Jesus brought us to the Father in an audacious act of faith, surrounded by people who mocked and scorned and eventually even crucified him. And he dug away the hardness that covered our hearts until we would turn and look upon him, being moved by his love. When I read what the Savior calls the paralyzed man, when he says that his sins are forgiven, he calls him son which is not a common address to just anybody at this time. You don't normally even hear people these days calling each other son. 
but it's used by Jesus to reassure the man as he heals him, warmly displaying his compassion. He doesn't do it suddenly. He doesn't do it forcefully. He says, son, your sins are forgiven. And this is the same warmth with which Jesus demonstrates his perfect compassion to us as well. As he opens his arms to us, calling us to come to him and to bring your loved ones along as well with you in prayer. As you go from here this morning, I urge you, take this opportunity to pray for your loved ones. I urge you, if you have a piece of paper or your phones or whatever, take this opportunity to write down the name of one person that you want to bring to God in prayer for the rest of this month and commit to praying for this person every time that you can and see what God does. Why don't I pray for us this morning? Father, we are beggars and this is true. We are but paralyzed people paralyzed by our own inaction, paralyzed by our own thoughts and the coldness of our hearts still. And yet, your warmth thaws away the coldness of our hearts. Your touch heals us of our paralysis. And your loving embrace brings us to love those around us. We want, as your sons and daughters, to bring more of your children home to you. We want to keep knocking at the door of your heart as well, just as you've knocked at the door of our hearts. And yet, where our hearts were incompassionate, where our hearts were hard, we find that your heart is soft. It beats for your people. It loves your people more than we could love them. Already your heart is moved by the plight of your people, by our loved ones that don't yet know you, by our loved ones that do know you but are struggling. It's these people that we wanna bring to you in prayer this morning. It's your people at New Life that I wanna bring to you in prayer this morning. And I ask that you would move our hearts to action. Help us, Lord, to bring your people before you. That you might do your work in their hearts. You have done a life-changing, a life-saving, a life-renewing work in us. And we wanna see that happen for our loved ones as well. We wanna see the dead rise once again. We want to see all of our friends standing shoulder to shoulder with us, praising your holy name, loving you with a love that's even greater than the love that we have for you. Just as your son intercedes on our behalf eternally, 
we ask, Lord, for endurance, that we, your saints, might pray on behalf of those around us. Help us to endure, help us to love, help us to bring your people before you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.